0: Psalm 106 is where we will be together this morning. I hope it's okay with you guys. We're going to stretch Psalm 106 out a little bit more. It wasn't my intent two weeks ago when we started in Psalm 106 um, or last week whenever we did it from home. But as I studied and got into Psalm 106 and the stories that are referenced here, I, I felt like it would be helpful to slow down a bit. And take a little more in-depth look at some of these things. And so today, it's it's prone to wander part three. And there will be a part four next week. We'll finish up the check At least I think now we'll finish the chapter. Maybe that'll change too. But uh, we'll be in verses 28 through 31. Just kind of a little bit of review since it's been a minute since we talked about this. Uh, some of these stories. The first five verses of Psalm 106. They reflect with joy on who God is, how he's come through for Israel in the past, how he continues to care for them uh, and and to bless them. But then verses 6 through 43 recount a bunch of situations in Israel's history that just illustrate this painful truth that even God's people are prone to wonder. And we looked at the first four events back on July 25th, the fifth one we looked at last week on the, the... sermon video, and we'll look at the sixth event today. So the previous ones, um, the first one, let me go through these just real quickly. Verses 6 through 13, the event by the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14. This section included one of the most significant verses from this chapter. I contend maybe even all of the Old Testament, and it's verse 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God's glory, I said this a couple weeks ago, his name's sake stands at the center of who he is, his very character. God's glory, his name's sake also stands at the center of his purpose for every person, for all of humanity. And God's glory, his name's sake, stands at the center of his purpose for all of creation. We looked at this first event the the children's rebellion by the red sea the children of israel their rebellion by the red sea and found the obvious truth that rebellion against god does not please god the second situation that's listed in psalm 106 and verses 14 and 15 is from numbers 11 the craving and the plague so the people some of the people of israel demanded meat they were tired of all the manna they wanted meat to eat god gave it to them but they got more than they bargained for And a deadly plague broke out among those who craved it, and lots of people died. Rebellion does not please God, but neither does being unsatisfied and demanding of God. The third situation that Psalm 106 references is from number 16. It's in verses 16 through 18. And it's this jealousy, fire, and then another plague. You might remember the names of the guys involved here, Korah, Datham, and Abiram. They were swallowed up by the earth. The earth literally opened up, swallowed them up. And all of Israel witnessed what happens when you try to control God. When you try to do things that would maybe overthrow God. Rebellion and making demands don't please God and neither does trying to control Him. The fourth thing was the golden calf in verses 19 through 23. Exodus 32 is the corresponding text for that. The people had just seen, remember, the marvelous things that God has done, delivering them from Egypt, delivering them from the Egyptian army by the Red Sea, walking through it, and then they just willingly and seemingly very quickly put their faith and bowed down to a silly idol that eats grass, right, of an ox, of an animal that eats grass. How lowly can you get We don't see how often we are just like that, though, but we are. We exchange, and I made this point, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we willingly give up truth for bowing down to lesser things, like a golden calf. We don't see how ridiculous those things are in the moment, but we need to be assured they are ridiculous. It is foolishness to put our faith in anything but Christ. And then in just this beautiful foreshadowing event, we talked about how it says that Moses stood in the gap, interceded for the people and stayed the wrath of God. And that's the foreshadowing of Christ, that he is that for his people even still today. What What a beautiful thing. What hope that we have. Moses did that for the people for a time, but he's a guy and he died. But Christ rose from the grave never to die again, and he intercedes for his people even today. There's hope in that for us. What a blessing it is. Praise the Lord. Last week, we looked at the fifth situation, and that was the first instance that's mentioned here of complaining. From Numbers 14, verses 24 through 27 of Psalm 106, God called the promised land good. The ten spies and the majority of the people, they called it bad. Their lack of faith had dire consequences for both them and their children. God has a place of rest and promise for every believer, but it can only be entered into by faith. And that leads us to our story for today. Number 6 from Psalm one hundred five, 106, uh, verses 28 through 31. Let's read that together, and then we'll pray. Psalm 106, verses 28 through 31. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Let's pray. Lord, we would not read this properly if we did not read ourselves into these things and recognize how foolish we can be. And Lord, it's by your grace that we aren't uh, the people that our flesh would drive us to be. Uh, It's by your goodness and mercy that you have saved many of us, Lord, all those who put their faith in you, you will redeem and you will save and you will rescue. And, And so that's the hope that we have, that Christ is now our intercessor, And he has absorbed and taken on the full wrath of God for my sin. And my brothers and sisters sin when they believe. And so, Lord, we need to remember that and be reminded of it. Just like this psalm is reminding the people of Israel of all that God has brought them through in their past. Lord, this morning, may you remind us of what you've brought us out of. Of not just the difficult situations, Lord, but the sin that so easily entangled us would remind us of our great Redeemer and his great faithfulness to us. Be with us as we study. May our eyes be opened, our hearts be moved by your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So there's a little bit of foundation for this situation that really we're going to look at and study on the eighth story that comes up in here. So next week, hopefully, we'll get into that. So there may be some questions When we're finished today that hopefully will be answered then. If you do have any, I'd love to talk with you about those this week. Feel free to contact me. Um, but there's some things from Numbers 25. So you can kind of be turning to Numbers 25 that are going to help us understand what's going on in Psalm 106 verses 28 through 31. In this story, the Israelites are in the area of Shittim, a place in the plains of Moab. Okay, uh, it got its name, Shatim got its name from the kind of trees that grew in abundance there. Uh, today, we would call those acacia trees, acacia wood. It's interesting that the place where they're at is literally on the doorstep of the promised land. I don't know that it's a stone's throw to there, but it's it's the next, they're on the border of the promised land here. On the border, right next to Canaan. And, and so I, I just bring that up to, to remind us that they're, they're so close. They're right there. You would think they could see the finish line and that would affect how they believed their, their faith, what they did. But as we'll see, it had an opposite effect. So while, while they're in this place, while they're at Shatim, and they're right next door to the promised land. The men of Israel specifically begin to commit adultery with the women of Moab. And in PG terms, they are committing themselves to women of other nations. People of whom the Lord specifically told them to drive out of the land. Okay, we're going to talk about more about that uh, next week in the eighth story that's listed in Psalm 106. But that was what they were told. to Drive these people out. Instead, what are they doing? They're yoking themselves to the people in direct opposition of what God has said. So the result of this kind of intermingling and intermarrying, if you will, was exactly what they should have expected would happen because it's exactly what God said would happen. So read with me if you're in Numbers 25. Look at verses 2 and 3. These... And we're talking about the people of the daughters of Moab. These invited the people, the people of Israel, to their sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the chiefs of the people, I'm sorry, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So kind of a repeat of what Psalm 106 said. They yoked themselves to a people who worshipped pagan gods. Uh, the text here says dead gods, idols, who are not alive. Isaiah makes that really clear in his book, like these, these dead idols, there's no breath in them, there's no life in them, and they're bowing down to them. They participated in feasts celebrating these dead, meaningless, worthless, no-life idols. There's no God there. And they ate food that was supposed to be sacrificed to them. As a result of this, act of defiance and rebellion, a lot of people in Israel died. And another plague was sent. And you can read through the story in chapter 25. I do think that the text in Psalm 106 is intentionally vague uh, to some degree here. We're not going to go through all the details, but you can just look down in pretty dramatic fashion. People in Israel were dying because of this. And then in verse 6 it says, And behold... Almost like it can't be believed. Like, get a load of this. Behold, incredibly defiant act. One Israelite man brings a Midianite woman through the middle of camp right to his own family's tent in just open rebellion. And this is right when people are mourning over their sin. They're crying. They're weeping because of this. Because people are dying... Some of the people are weeping over their sin, and this guy brings a woman right through, flaunting his rebellion, persisting in his sin, and testing and angering the Lord and his name. Now, obviously, this does not please the Lord, but it also righteously upset another guy, a guy named Phineas. Now, there's no guy named Ferb in this story, kids. It's not Phineas and Ferb. It's just Phineas here. But before we talk about Phineas, let me pause and interject just a little bit more of the story because I think it's helpful and I think it might give us some insight even into what we battle today, even what we're up against today. So flip back if you're in Numbers 25, flip back to Numbers 22 for just a moment and somebody tell me what are the, what are, what's the title of this chapter in your Bible? Somebody say it out loud. Balak summons Balaam. Okay, this is, this is sort of an obscure story. Um, it's maybe you've heard of some of these names. Uh, you might be familiar with Balaam more than you are Balak and probably only familiar with Balaam because he had a pretty interesting pet that spoke to him. Uh, let's read verses 1 through 3, chapter 22. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Okay, so stop right there. Do you see what's going on? So back to Psalm 106. Israel is in Shittim, right outside of the land of Canaan. And this correlates with the story here. The people are there, and the king of Moab, the king of the women who Israel yoked themselves with, that king was scared of Israel, terrified of the people of God because they were so many. But, if you know the story, and we're not going to read it all, but if you know this story, Balak summons Balaam to try and curse the people of Israel. He says, call on your God and and curse these people. Well, it didn't quite work out the way that he wanted. Look at verse 11 of chapter 23. Numbers 23, verse 11. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. This didn't work out quite the way he thought. Look at chapter 24, verse 10. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've blessed them these three times. So Balak's intention was... To curse the people of Israel. But he couldn't do it. He, he, it didn't work out the way that he wanted. Instead, God blessed the people. And so, here's where it starts to take a, a bad turn in this story. So if the Israelites couldn't be defeated by a direct attack or by God cursing them, maybe a more subtle approach would work. And it did. Who who, or what pulled the people away from God in Psalm 106? The women of Moab, right? That's who the people of Israel, the men of Israel, yoked themselves to. So they couldn't be defeated by a direct attack from the enemy. So instead, he they're led astray from within. This was the plan, really, that Balaam convinced Balak of how to take down the Israelites. And Revelation actually, verses chapter two, verse fourteen, makes the connection here, which is just very interesting to me. Revelation two fourteen. But I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. It's Balaam's idea to put a stumbling block before Israel. So Balaam was restrained in cursing the Israelites, but the plan to trip them up still worked. It's one of the enemy's greatest tools, I think. One that has worked since the very beginning when he enticed Adam and Eve with fruit that was, Genesis says, pleasing to the eyes. Even though God said that it would end in ruin for them, Adam and Eve thought it looked good, and they ate. Even though God said not to intermingle with pagan people, certainly not in marriage, the Israelites thought that the Moabite women looked good and fell into idol worship that pulled them away from the one true God. So again, God called the promised land good and the people called it bad. God called being yoked to pagans bad and the people called it good. Do you see a theme here? If we're not careful, the unchecked desires of the flesh will cause us to exchange the truth of God for a lie with terrible consequences. King Balak couldn't pay Balaam enough money to make God curse Israel, but now Israel was cursed because of their own sin against God. What an enemy could never accomplish against Israel, Israel did to itself by disobedience. That's a sad statement. What should be especially sobering here is to realize our own sin and our own rebellion against the Lord and how it does so much more damage than the mightiest attacks of Satan. When we find ourselves calling evil good and good evil, we need to fall on our faces and plead with God for mercy because judgment is around the corner. We see that here and we see it even playing out today. And so as we jump back into our main story in Psalm 106, we still, we see this very thing happening too. Because of this unlawful union between pagan nations and willingly joining in their idol worship, a plague then falls upon the people. It wasn't just a plague that started this all, but many were being put to death based on the instructions that God gave to the leaders in Numbers chapter 25, verse 4. God's judgment is nothing to make light of. Do you guys know what a flagrant foul is in basketball? Probably, most of you do. So a flagrant foul is when a player commits a foul, but it's not just a normal infraction of the rules. It's something that's more obvious and a lot of times has bad intent to it. Okay, And the, the referees nowadays have the option to review it and then actually suspend you, kick you out of the game, uh, that sort of thing, depending on how severe it is. Well, right in the middle of this story, this guy brings a woman through the camp of Israel and commits a flagrant foul. And I'm not trying to make light of this because of the seriousness of what happens, but this is flagrant In the midst of all, in the eyes of all, he brings this rebellion to light. And like I said, I think Psalm 106 is intentionally vague in this. It obscures kind of some of the details of this, so I won't get into too many of them either. But this brings us back to the guy named Phineas. Numbers 25 verse 11 says that Phineas was zealous with the Lord's zeal among the people. Uh, Put it another way, he was passionate about the things that God was passionate about. He cared about the things that God cared about. Namely, the honor of God. Truth. Righteousness. Holiness. Verse 30 of Psalm 106 says that Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. In some of your versions it might say he rose up. That means that he out of a Fairly passive people, he rose up with a passion for the truth. He knew what was happening was wrong, and he didn't want it to continue in order to, he didn't want it to further condemn the nation, and drastic times in this situation called for a pretty drastic measure. His actions were extreme, there's no doubt about it. But they were necessary to put a stop, not just to the plague that was immediately affecting the people, but to the sin of Israel in general. To stop this. You could say that Phineas' javelin was a minister of God's righteous judgment. His spear was God's judgment. Matthew Henry says it's the honor of saints to be zealous against sin. If I could add to Matthew Henry, I would say it's the honor of saints to be zealous for the namesake of Christ. It's a joy, it's a pleasure, it's the honor of believers to protect and ad- adhere to the name of Jesus, to, to lift it up and not allow it to be teared down, torn down. And I, I put it this way, to be zealous for the namesake of the Lord, just because of Psalm 106, verse 6, is already said that he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Guys, here's what we need to understand from this. God saves wretched people out of the pit of sin simply because he is a good and merciful God. That's the character of God. He saves people who are caught in their trespasses and sins because of his goodness, because of his mercy. He doesn't save people because they've earned it. He doesn't save people because they inherently deserve it. He does it to show his mighty power. He does it for his name's sake, verse 6 says. He does it so that he might show, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's why God saves people. If God judges and God condemns, he's right to do so. Would it have been right for God to wipe out the nation of Israel because of this disobedience? It would have been. They were warned, given multiple chances to repent and straighten up. It would have been right for God to condemn. But if God cleanses and God forgives, He's right to do so. He's right in either case because He's just and He's good. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 9 verses 15 and 16 that there's no injustice in God. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, and this is important. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Doesn't doesn't depend on your will and how hard you work. It depends on God who has mercy. Guys, it is a good thing that salvation depends on God and not on you and not on me. It is a good thing because our scale of worth, of who's worthy of God's forgiveness, is so broken that we would get it wrong every single time, for everybody else and for ourselves. It is a good thing that God's standard of righteousness does not depend on you and me. But if it depends on God, then we can trust that everything He does is just and right and true. So let me say it again. God saves wretched people out of sin simply because he is good and merciful. And the only place that we might be able to see that more clearly than the nation of Israel is in our own lives. Our sin, it may not be as outward as this guy who committed the flagrant foul. It may not be as outward as these complainings and demandings and trying to control God. It may not be that outward. We may be able to hide it a little bit more, but it doesn't mean that it's not just as wrong and just as harmful to us. So what's the solution here? This takes us a little bit back to Phineas. What's the solution? Well, I don't think the solution to all of our sin is being run through with the spear, thankfully. But I do think that it has something to do with a spear. I think it has something to do with a crown of thorns. Have have something to do with two wooden beams. I think it has something to do with a righteous sacrifice that stops the plague of sin. The judgment on Israel's sin was stopped by the removal of the guilty parties in dramatic fashion. So what's the solution? It's the cross. Had it not happened, God's righteous judgment against sin would have wiped all of the Israelites away. And he would have been justified in doing it. And were it not for the sacrifice of Christ, God would be right to wipe all of us away because of sin as well. My sin, the judgment on it, is stopped by the removal of my own dark and dead heart in even more dramatic fashion than what happened in the story with Phineas. Had Christ not went to the cross and removed our guilt, God's righteous judgment against my sin would carry me away. And he'd be right to do it. So after all of this, did Israel deserve another chance? Did Israel deserve to be forgiven? Did they earn God's favor? No. No. They didn't. Do I deserve God's favor? Have you worked hard enough to earn God's forgiveness? No. You can't. Stop trying. Thankfully, it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God who has mercy. And thankfully, he is a good and merciful God. Thankfully, Christ stood up like Phineas and did something about the sin that was tearing his people apart. He stood up and he did something about the sin that was separating the people from God. Phineas reconciled the people back to God, but only for a time. You know Israelites' history. You know that this did not last for long. There wasn't peace for long at all. Jesus reconciles his people back to God in the same way, but his reconciliation removes sin forever. Glory to his name. Listen to Romans 5, verses 6 through 11 as we close this morning. For while we were still weak, just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, By his death, Jesus eliminated our sin. By his life, he brings us back into a right relationship with God. This is his work. This is his doing, and he did it, we find out from Hebrews, he did it for the joy that was set before him. Here's the wildest part about all of this, in my eyes at least. Christian, you are that joy. That was set before Him. You are that joy. He delights in you. Not because of how hard you've worked to earn it. But because God is merciful and good. And He has set His affection on you. And He has called you. And He is calling you still to righteousness and truth. He went to the cross for you. He did it all for you. But his love doesn't depend on your effort. It depends on God's love for you. And so as we think about Psalm 106 and we think about Phineas and how he stepped in and he rose up out of a, maybe pathetic is a a strong word, but out of a at least lukewarm people, may we do the same. Now this is, There's no political slant to this encouragement and challenge, friends. This is just standing for truth in a culture that flagrantly brings disobedience to the forefront. And we see it in virtually every avenue of life. Will we stand? Sometimes in dramatic fashion, not always, but will we stand for truth when it's not common, when it's not pleasant, and when it means possible heartache for us. I pray that we will. I hope that we will. I believe that we will. Because God's people through his word, by his power, will always stand for truth. Let's pray. Lord, uh, your kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's what leads non-Christians to repentance. And so we don't go in anger Lord, we don't go um, trying to force people to do things that they don't want to do or aren't ready to do, Lord. But we do go in truth. We do go in love. And Lord, we, we leave the rest up to you. But Lord, like Phineas, may we take a stand where we need to take a stand. There are so many issues that we need to be vocal about, not antagonistic, not rude, Lord, but to stand firm in truth on, Lord, I pray that we would. I pray that you would give your people here at Ramsey Creek specifically a desire and a passion for the things that you're passionate about. Lord, may we be zealous for the things that you're zealous about like Phineas was. May we stand for truth and life and righteousness as often as we have opportunity. Lord, we know that that in and of itself, even doing that doesn't earn us your favor. It's just that you've placed it on us because of your mercy and your love. And so, Lord, there may be some today who haven't experienced, who don't know your love personally. Lord, maybe they think that they have are not worthy of it. Lord, may they see that in reality none of us are. But Christ gives it while we were still sinners. He's died for the ungodly. He's reconciled the enemies of God back to Himself, and that describes each one of us, Lord, apart from grace. And so, Lord, as we as we sing and reflect now on this message and on Your Word, and may Your Spirit move within Your people here. Spur us on to f- further to good works and love, Lord, that the name of Christ may be lifted high, not dragged through the mud here. Lord, m- do that work in us individually. First, God, help us reveal, if necessary, where we are bowing down to worthless idols. Reveal it in my heart, Lord, so that we may repent and turn, because if not judgment waits, just judgment waits, Lord. Deliver us from evil, Father, that we might go and do your will, your way. In Christ's name I pray, amen.